everyone, I'm Rob Warner. And I'm Elliot Jackson. And this is Just Ride, a new cycling podcast from Red Bull. Let's go. And that was one of the moments where like a little light bulb came on and I thought, oh, maybe I should cycle around the world. I tried to go without sleep for like three days going across Italy. Didn't go well. This slug fell off the brim of my cap right next to my coffee. (laughs) (laughs) I do not know how long it had been there, but clearly when I was lying in the field. Oh my God. Hello and welcome to another episode of your favourite podcast, Just Ride. My name's Rob Warner. And I'm Elliot Jackson. Rob, how, uh, how are you? I'm good. I'm really good, actually. I uh, enjoyed the last couple of World Cup races we went to. And then mm-hmm. I went to Mexico. Um, and yeah. against all odds, Wait, how should is... we say. No, okay. Tell me, tell me about Mexico. What were, you, what were you up to there? I was making a film for Giant. And I kind of wasn't very organized anyway. And then the dude that was going to be filming it for me very sadly couldn't make it. He, let, he had to cancel just a couple of days before. So I was up a uh-huh. certain creek without a paddle, to put it nicely. And then uh-huh. push came a shove. Someone got on an aeroplane from Vancouver to make the film with me that I'd never met or spoken to or even heard of before. <laughs> and he was by far the best filmmaker I've ever worked with. So <laughs> it was a next no level trip. Way. Yeah, it was oh brilliant. My God, no brilliant. way. Wait, because you guys were, what was the, what was the theme of the film? I'm not giving that away now. I think okay, if I give that okay, away, fine. it probably will never be allowed to be released. Okay, sure, <laughs> so sure, sure, sure. We'll okay, chill. that's good, right? But yeah, it, it's a funny. Okay, I, like it. I tried to make a comedy for the first time ever, which is why I was very stressed about who I was filming with because whoever's behind behind the lens filming me, I need them to kind of work and laugh and you know, yeah. you know what I mean. Like it's no good having someone's really grumpy totally. there or whatever. So. But it all, yeah, it worked out brilliantly. So hopefully, hopefully it'll be a good little flick when it comes out at Christmas. Wow. Okay. Yeah, what have you been up wow. to? What have you been up to? I see you're back in Seattle. Huh? Nirvana? I'm, uh, I'm up here in Seattle. I'm up here in Seattle. So I um, I just came from Bentonville, Arkansas. You were there. <gasps> I we love interviewed, Bentonville. Uh, I love Bentonville. Yeah. <laughs> so... Uh, I was watching. There was a there was a conference there, and there was also the Big Sugar Gravel Race. So I saw Pacey McElveen, who we did an episode with. Did he win? Funnily enough, no, he didn't win. But he told <gasps> me he told me before we did the podcast. Before we did the podcast, he was like, "Yeah, I was trying to get Rob on uh, on my podcast," and yeah. he was like. I uh, don't really like podcasts. Don't really like podcasts. <laughs> and I was like, Payson, you should have said something on the podcast. But I was like, I, I had the same experience with Rob. And now I think he's a podcast lover. So, <laughs> yeah, I love doing it. I love, I love, I love this side of it. Ah, maybe I'll start going as a yeah. guest now. I could again. I have, I've only ever done about two in my whole life, you know. Yeah, I don't, it's, I don't know. It is actually true. It is actually true. Yeah, two I've done. Two, two I've done. That's it. It's mad, isn't it? I, um, so the funny thing was at at Big Sugar, you have uh, it's like a you know this big gravel race similar to Unbound, which Payson talked to us about, but it's about half the distance. And I was doing they call it doing the feed. So I had my friend Mod uh, Mod Farrell's uh, bottles and uh, what do they wear like a vest that has like uh, 
graham crackers and goldfish and oh, what? Uh, what whatever did you, you call it? Need. Did you just call a cream cracker? What did you call it? No, a graham cracker. Graham what's cracker. That? Is that what's that? <laughs> you know, it's like a it's like it a sugary cheese? cracker. With cheese? No, you just eat, I mean, is you it can, a cream but that's cracker? Not, right? Is it? No, it's cre- not cream. It's just a it's just a piece no, of it's bread. Not cre- Hang on, okay. a cream cracker is not cream. It's, it's a not an Oreo. biscuity type thing. No, it's like okay, it's something like, between bread and an sweet, Oreo. Oh, it's like sweet. a no. It's like a. I mean, it's a sweet biscuit. That's what you guys would call it. Bloody. That's different to a cream cracker. Okay, just we've established that. <laughs> okay, okay. So they have a vest, and there's like two checkpoints, and we went through this whole. They told me like, okay, this is this is what you should be doing. Um, go here at this time. First one, it was all good. I did an amazing job. I got her bottles, no stress. Second, I saw one, this on Instagram. You uh, made a big deal of it. <laughs> <laughs> well, second time, I'm like, Matt, Matt, stop. And she's just riding past me. I run. I only had my slippers on, so I was what? running after her. She wouldn't stop for some reason. And I gave her bottles, and I was like, okay, I did it, you know. And then I hear, Elliot, my gels. And I had forgot to give her her gels, so she came back. I ran after her again. I will. I know. I give myself a D minus. Drop the slippers, running with no shoes on. After her, gave her her gels. She goes on. I think it gave her a little bit of an adrenaline rush because she ended up top twenty. I think. Um, So, (laughs) I'm glad you can take the credit for that result. Yeah, I will take ninety nine percent of the credit if I do say so myself. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, but it was it was sweet. It was sweet. Yeah, it was really really good good. it was a great time and after last time we had some really amazing reviews that uh we shouted out so we checked and we had a couple more we want to we want to give you guys kathy j loved our chat with tom pidcock she said that she knew that he'd feel right at home with us no problem she said it shine right through thank you kathy and I love this comment from Harlberg on Instagram saying that he loves the show and it makes him push that little bit harder on the way to work. Don't push too hard. You don't want to get to work early. Just saying. <laughs> I think you should chill out a little bit. <laughs> and yeah. finally, we had a brilliant email from Charlie who said that he's been loving Just Ride. He said, could we ask someone to create like a talk like Rob Warner accent that people can learn on a platform like Babbel? What do you reckon, Rob? Well, I don't know really what sort of an accent I got because when I'm not doing television or a podcast, I fall back into my usual sort of Oxfordshire sort of uh, twang. Wait, what does so. that sound like? <laughs> <laughs> that was it. I was just doing it. Did you like it? <laughs> it sounds the same as it always does. Oh, my God. Right, let's move on to our guest today. Then this woman puts the ultra into ultra endurance. She has won the transcontinental race, whatever that is. I don't know. We're about to find out. She started, actually, and got into riding bicycles when she was studying in London and became a cycle courier and that has led her into the madness of her life now welcome to just ride emily chapel emily thank you so much for joining us the winner of the transcontinental race in 2016 but is it true that when you finished university and moved to london uh growing up in wales you had never really ridden a bike I kind of had a bit, but only as much as any kid rides a bike and actually a bit less because I lived 
in the middle of nowhere, so I had no friends to ride with. I think my rides were quite often just, you know, around the front garden and stuff like that. I I did a few times, but you wouldn't have looked at me as a kid and thought, oh, she's the one who's going to go on to win races. Right. Well, what what did you go to university for? What did you study? Oh, I was very academic. I studied English and then I did a, another degree in South Asian literature. And then I graduated in the middle of a global recession. There were no jobs. And so I did the logical thing and I became a cycle career. Well, I think that it's interesting for me because um, that academic career leading into a bike courier career seems like the most opposite thing I could imagine. Like I imagine bike couriers being, you know, raucous and, you know, weaving in and out of cars. Like how did that, how did that work? Oh, I was the least raucous courier. I really undermine the stereotype in every way. I I would diligently stop at all of the lights. I considered myself an ambassador (laughs) for good road use, but I did, I did get into going really, really fast. So one of the awesome things about being a courier, you you ride your bike in and out of traffic day in, day out. So it becomes second nature. You become really, really good at it. And I had never been good at something physically before. And it was exhilarating, the feeling of the skill. And I'm sure you know this, just being able to launch yourself at something impossibly technical and not even think about how you're going to get through it because you just do. It's it's super funny you say that. Like, were there uh, were there some what are what is a technical move for a bike courier? That that is a interesting image to have in my mind. So there's loads and loads of moving parts in the city. So at any given moment, you've got maybe two lanes, four lanes, three lanes of traffic. You've got a junction where things are going a lot of different directions. You've got other cyclists. You've got pedestrians crossing in all directions, often against the traffic. You've got pigeons. You've got potholes. You've got drain covers. Some of these are moving. Some of them are not. And every single moving part, you're looking at it as you're going and subconsciously calculating its trajectory. So like a a pedestrian that you saw two and a half seconds ago, you know that by the time you get to where they are, they're going to be over there. And alongside that, there's like 16 other moving parts that have come into place. So I could not do that with my conscious brain. But you get used to, you really understand the way the world moves around you and you move through it according to that. And mostly it goes well. And I suppose it was, you know, yeah, it's a good way to learn how to ride a bike. You said you hadn't really ridden bicycles much before then I guess you're in your late teens now I mean knowing what I know that you do now did you really only really start like doing physical activity then at that point in time before that you really hadn't I had a bit but not much so I got into cycling when I was about 24 um which now I think okay it's not that late but at the time I thought I was far too old for it And I just moved to London. I needed a bike to get around. I was stressed out with all the public transport. I couldn't afford it. But I also had looked at people cycling in London and thought, I I just don't know how you can do that. It seems not only dangerous, but impossible. So I don't remember exactly what was in my head that thinking that I then decided, oh, this is the thing for me. Um, But it it was a very steep learning curve. And it was as much learning how to ride through the traffic as it was just learning how to get to places because London has a very complicated street system. It's not like I couriered in New York for uh, for a day and it's easy. You just go like 19 blocks one way and eight blocks the other way. But London, all the streets go in different directions. You have one way systems. So it's very, it's like a puzzle. And so how many miles were you racking up? Like, and, and what kind of stuff were you delivering? 
So miles, I never measured it. I've never really measured anything I've done. And people estimated it was about 60 miles, so about 100 kilometers a day. So I was doing it five days a week. So that that adds up a bit. Yeah. But it's also, it's, it's wow. di- different mileage uh, because you're not just going and going and going. You're stopping and starting and you're stopping and sprinting and breaking and sprinting and stopping and running up the stairs and then coming down again, unlocking your bike and sprinting off. So it's a different sort of movement. And the things I carried... Um, Oh God, all sorts of things. Like there was a lot of just envelopes that, you know, probably had a contract in them. But then I carried lots Uh of um, like shoes and clothes from photo studios to PR companies and stuff like that. Lots of planning applications, uh, bunches of flowers, vast sums of money. One of the cool things was I used to carry enormous uh, hard drives that had TV programs on them because uh, although couriers really suffered when the internet started to happen, at that point, I don't know how it is now. Oh, wow, right. It would take too long to transfer the files. So they put them on a hard drive and give them to me and send them by courier. No way. Oh, that's so wild. Did you ever have your bike get stolen or anything like that? Like you you go and deliver an envelope and then you come back out and you somebody's, you know, chipped the lock out or something? No, thankfully not. So I always locked my bike up and I was usually not away from it for long. Um, I did worry sometimes because sometimes there was nothing to lock it to. So you just kind of lean it somewhere and think, this is, this is a crappy old bike. It's well locked. No one's going to want to steal it, but you never know. And there was um, a courier friend and I once went through a phase of pretending to steal each other's bikes. So he had a great big cargo <laughs> bike. And if I ever saw his bike parked outside somewhere, I'd just wheel it around the corner and uh, wait for him to come out and look scared. And he did the same to me. It was fine. Can I ask, uh, you know, and e-bikes are a big thing. I really love e-biking. So 60 miles a day might be possible for me. What sort of money do you make in a day doing 60 (laughs) miles on a bike? Not very much. Oh, really? It's not a good (laughs) earner? No, no, it's terrible. Stick to your day job. (laughs) I was thinking career change. No, it's really not worth it. So bear in mind, it's, it's now, it's almost 10 years since I did it. So my knowledge is all a bit outdated. One of the things with couriers is once you're in the gang, everyone says, ah, oh, five years ago, that's when it was really good. 10 years ago, that's when the good money was. <laughs> yeah. So it was right, just getting yeah. worse and worse. But the money was, I don't know, I think I made 250 to 300 pounds a week, which is not very good, especially when your bike needs fixing. It's less than a pound a mile. It's yeah. less than a pound a mile. Yeah. Oh, I never thought Whoa. of it that way. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Wow. No, stick to I'm the day out. job. It's uh, And it's interesting too, because I would imagine it's pretty competitive, uh, like trying to look for jobs. And um, I don't know if there's kind of like an underground world in the courier business. Well, it was less competitive than I thought, because when I started, everyone said, oh, you know, you've got to be really fast. You've got to fight all the other couriers for the jobs. Actually, it was nothing like that. It was kind of boring because it's it's all run by companies (laughs) and they didn't want to say, yeah, sure, we'll have the documents there in 10 minutes if they couldn't keep that promise. So most of the jobs, it was not a big deadline. And if you just went steadily, reasonably fast, you'd get there. I think I had two jobs ever where I had to like really sprint. Like one was, I think some guy was about to go to an airport and didn't have a ticket or something. And I I got it there with like seconds to spare. No, why? 
Um, but wow. it was mostly boringly about reliability. So I ended up getting a decent amount of jobs because I was a good girl and I turned up at the same time every day and I never went missing and I never lost a pack. Well, I lost a couple of packages. That's another story. But <laughs> wait, wait, tell the story. How did you lose the packages? <laughs> well, we've all, we've all been there. Um, I'm just trying to think of the, the worst story. I think, well, the, the worst one was, it was a package that was reasonably urgent. Um, so it did have to get there in time. And I had a few jobs concurrently. So I picked up a few in Soho and then I was on my way through town going east. And I got to the delivery place for this package and I couldn't find it in my bag. And I freaked out and thought, oh, it must be in here somewhere. And I hunted and hunted. And then I suddenly realised I had not even picked it up. I just... Oh, no. I picked up the others. I'd gone straight past this building. And yeah, it was bad news. I had I had oh, to no. phone the office and say, I'm sorry, we're going to be late on this job. You have to send someone else to get it. Oh. Because sometimes oh, with something like that, wow. you could ride really fast and just kind of, you know, make up for it. But I was too far away. Mm. There were other packages. It was mm. too urgent. So there were there were various things like that. Did you have um, sat and have on your phone back then or have you literally <laughs> got a knowledge of London now and could be a taxi driver if needed? Um, I'm probably about halfway to being a taxi driver and there are a few oh, careers wow. who go on to do that. So I I got a smart... Is there? Yeah, yeah, there's a few. Um, no I know I know two of them and I think there are more. It's a lot of work. Like they study for years. Yeah. There was a, right. a mate of mine was doing it as I left and he used to, um, he spent all his weekends on his bike as well, just going around every part of the city because you have to know every street. Couriers, it's mostly right. just zone one and a bit of zone two, just the centre. Um, but no, I, I oh, had boy. a I had a paper A to Z. Um, so I did it. I had one. I had one. Yeah. Wait, what is that? It. I don't even know what that is. What is, is oh, that like a map like, of London or what? It's like a whole book of maps of London because it's such a big place. So it's about two thirds of the book is just pages of maps, really detailed maps. Okay. And the other third is an index. Okay. So if they're like, you know, go to go to Baker Street and you're like, oh God, where's Baker Street? You find it in the index. It gives you a co- page okay. number yeah. and coordinates and you have a look. And then you think, okay, right, that's near that place I know how to get to. So you you plan it all in your head. It's tight. It's about that big, right? So you end up, as I remember, you're like, yep. it's honestly, I Google got Maps, quite a few. iPhone. <laughs> but it, it, I, never, I never got anywhere with an A to Z. All I did was get more lost. It was the worst thing I ever invested in. Uh, I, to say I miss it. <laughs> I do think the iPhone's more efficient, but I, I miss the A to Z. Yeah. It was fun. Yeah. Emily, do you, you now, like... I. Yeah, do you do you refuse to use like Google Maps now when you're riding around because you feel like you have a good sense of direction? <laughs> yeah. No, I still use it. And I tell you what, I get lost in London now, or at least I ride around <laughs> and stuff has changed. It changes really quickly. So I don't live there anymore. Right. Whenever I go back, like I find I'm going one way and suddenly a bike lane takes me off another way. Or I get to somewhere I thought I was going to find something and like the street's all different. There's a new building and the cafe I wanted is closed down. It's uh, It changes very quickly. And Emily, you've written two books on the, on the topic. What are they called? How did you, how did you decide to write, write the books? Right. So the first book um, is about being a bike messenger and it's called What Goes Around. And I wrote mm. that, I mean... 
you know, the boring story is I wrote it because a literary agent approached me and said, hey, you should write a book. But I wanted to write it because I wanted to work out for myself why I had done this boring manual labour job for six years and not got bored with it. Because huh. I thought, I, you know, I've got a lively mind. I'm an educated person. I'd never stuck with a job longer than six weeks. This, I could have right. done it forever. I wish I was Good still job. doing it. So the book was sort of an exploration of that, really, and a chance to get what all my stories the... down. And, and, and what was that insight? What, what did you <laughs> kind of, what was the conclusion you came to? Well, I didn't come to a conclusion, but in the process of putting it all down, I realised there's so many different parts to this job. There's the people, there's the fact that you get to know London really well, there's the physical side of it, there's, as I was saying, you know, the, the high level of skill you get that is really intoxicating, there's all the different sorts of history that you discover as you go, Yeah. and it just, it never got old. No, and as cities go, like you say, on planet earth london's got so much history it must have been amazing to see it all and like yeah to you really 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 discovering london i got up there a lot i only lived just outside it mm. and, you know i only skimmed the surface like it is it's as good mm. as new york right when you get into it yeah mm. i love it because i it, i still don't feel like i know it properly and yet what i really like is if i watch a film or any program and there's a scene in london if it's like two seconds Often I'll see like the corner of a building and think, oh, I know where that is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, you, wrote, you would have ridden a lot of London then in six years, wouldn't you? You, you covered most of it. Uh, well, only, only the central bits. Um, I mean, I know, uh, I know yeah. quite a lot of the other bits, but the detailed knowledge is just like the main uh, city centre. Yeah, yeah. Still, still that, quite yeah. big. Well, that's right. And so you were doing about, what, 300 miles, 400 miles a week. And this is obviously where things develop from, right? Into <laughs> what you do now. Yeah. So, well, the story I always tell people is that I was on my way home from work one day and I think my brake cable had snapped or something like that. And I stopped off in Brixton Cycles to get another one. And I walked in moaning about the fact that my stupid bike had broken again. Yeah. And one of the mechanics said, come on, Emily, you, you do loads of miles. You know how this works. That's why your bike keeps breaking. And so I fixed the bike and I rode home um, thinking about, yeah, I guess maybe I do do quite a lot of miles. I wonder, I wonder how many miles I do a week. I wonder how many miles I've done since I started doing this. Wow. I wonder how many yeah. times around the world that would be. And that was one of the moments where I, like a little light bulb came on and I thought, oh, maybe I should cycle around the world. And that was my next <laughs> big thing. And you have, have, you no have cycled way. around the world, have you? Not all the way. So I, I was out for about 18 months. And after 18 months, I thought, that's enough for now. Um, but I had, I kind of caught the long distance bug a bit by that point. And while we're on that, so you probably know better than me. Did Mark Beaumont ride around the world in, was it 80 days? How many days was it? 79. My goodness me, because you said you didn't make it in 18 months. I know. That, that's insane when you when you when you put it like that. That is insane, when he right? Rode, what is this? So Mark, correct me if I'm wrong, Emily, but Mark Bowman holds the record, right, for yeah. the fastest cycling around planet Earth. If you come at the end of a landmass, you can go north or south or or backwards, you know what I mean? You, so you get on a plane and, and he actually circumnavigated the whole of planet Earth in 79 days. He worked out, didn't he, that 
he could cycle for 22 hours a day at a certain speed and sleep for two hours. It was something like that. Then he knew he could make it. It was. It, are you are you tempted by a challenge like that, Emily? Or um, I have thought about it. And I mean, we, we might get onto this a bit more when we get into the ultra racing stuff. Um, I have thought about it. I think ultimately, for me, it would be too much admin and too much pressure. And I just want to ride my bike. And also, I kind of like stopping. Like, sure, I want to ride 200 miles a day. <laughs> but I also want to stop in a cafe. And Mark Beaumont does not stop in cafes. No, he doesn't. <laughs> like, I want the big miles, but I want the fun as well. I, I love that riding around the world is too much admin. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, Emily, uh, tell us tell us about the Transcontinental Race. Tell us how that came about. Um, we know nothing about it. So give us an overview of what it is and, and how you even thought to do it in the first place. Okay. So the Transcontinental, Transcontinental Race was started in 2013 so this year will be the the 10th anniversary and it was founded by a man called Mike Hall and at that point he was the record holder for cycling around the world very fast he had done that in 2012 um, when I was busy doing my much slower not quite around the world thing so I was kind of aware of him and he had done I think he'd averaged about 200 miles a day and I'd done some sections of my trip where I was averaging over 100 miles a day but I was like this is just impossible. This is beyond. How could a human being do that? So like I'd heard about this Mike Hall and I was kind of in awe. And the following year, he founded this race that was at, at first, it was very much a kind of grassroots, small bunch of people. Let's just see what happens. Mm. If we meet in London, we all set off at the same time. We cycle to Istanbul. No support. No ass- Like you do. Exactly. No no outside assistance. The clock never stops. So obviously you've got to sleep, but you decide how much you sleep. And I think at that point, there were three checkpoints you had to go through. So everybody was kind of more or less on the same route. But you plan your own route as well. And it was a massive hit. So I think the next year, there were maybe 100 people. And the third year, having watched it for a couple of years, I signed up. And I was was really nervous about this because I'd done big rides and I'd been a courier. But I'd never raced. I'd never been competitive. And I hadn't really thought about the fact. I mean, I knew I was strong and fit, but that was just like a byproduct of what I did for a living. I'd never thought about using it. So I felt like I was a complete novice. But long story short, I turned out to be okay at it. (laughs) So you won it in your first year? No, 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 no. The first year, I made a terrible mistake. It went better than I expected. So I got overconfident and I thought, right, Sleep is for wimps. I'm just going to go without sleep. That's how you win. So I for how went, long? Well, I think I... No, I kept, I kept having to have little naps, but I tried to go without sleep for like three days going across Italy. Oh, Didn't go well. I got into Slovenia and I ended up in hospital. Um, and the nice doctors told me that I would be fine, but I should probably stop. So I did. And the next oh, year... My. Yeah, I went back thinking, okay, I realised that was a mistake. Let's do this sensibly. And and what what if I can ask, what hospitalised you then? The the lack of sleep or the physical side of things? Um, Well, I was very out of it at the time, so I mean, yeah, because you can go kind of mad, right, with sleep deprivation. (laughs) Yeah, I was disappointed because I never hallucinated. Everyone goes on about their hallucinations. (laughs) I have never had them, unless I was hallucinating, (laughs) like. Italian men. I don't on move in your circles. 
<laughs> I I just imagine you riding around and then just like falling asleep on the bike, dreaming a little bit, and then like coming back up. Oh, that is not too far from the truth. It's it's not necessarily safe. I was getting a little bit out of it, and I was having naps by the side of the road. Um, actually, a story <laughs> you'll like about that period when I was not quite awake riding across Italy was um, one morning. Uh, I'd ridden through the night. I'd had a couple of little lie downs and fields along the way. And eventually, about six or seven in the morning, I got to a cafe that was open. So I went in and I ordered an espresso. And the guy behind the bar kind of looked at me in quite a funny way. And I thought, oh, fine. You know, I probably look terrible at this stage. And then as I sat down at the table, this slug fell off the brim of my cap right next to my coffee. <laughs> <laughs> I do not know how long it had been there, but clearly when I was lying in the field. Oh, my God. I, I don't know what's more gnarly that, that you had a slug there, that you didn't know the slug was there, or that the dude making you coffee was just like, yeah, love slugs. No worries. Sweetener? No, I love a slug. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's a glamorous sport. What can I say? So, yeah, the reason I ended up in hospital was I started to have chest pains. And I thought, oh, I should probably worry about this. I was also really happy to have an excuse to stop. And they never figured out what it was, but they checked all the important bits and they said, it's probably your intercostal muscles. Just like calm down a bit. No, why? And you never had it wow. since, I guess. So you're all good. I have a couple of times. It always happens when, I'm, when I've been overdoing it, when I'm very tired and that when I stop and rest. So I, I had just mm. had a sleep and that was, I think, what set it off. So huh. I'm not worried about it now. And so does the, you did it the first year, had to, had to bow out in Italy. And does, when you came back the next year, does the route change? Um, did you kind of know it already? Like how, yeah, what so is kind of the structure of the race? It changes every year, which is really nice because it means that there's never any records to break um, because that huh. gets quite boring. If it's the same yeah. every year, you just get a smaller right. and smaller number. So right. yeah, different race every year. So the second year I did it, uh, it, start, it started in Belgium by this point, in Gerardsbergen, with a lovely cobbled climb. And the checkpoints, let's see if I can remember, were in Clermont-Ferrand in France, and you had to go up close to Puy de Dôme. Uh, so they always put the checkpoints in mountainous areas. So you could pick the flattest, <laughs> fastest route, except you were going to have to go into the mountains to get to the checkpoints. And then they really oh, cleverly, they put one in Grindelwald in Switzerland at the western end of the Alps. Then they put one in... Uh, the Dolomites at the eastern end of the Alps. So we all just had to go straight through the Alps. And then, oh. the, I know, then the last one was in Montenegro on the way to, to Turkey. So that was... It sounds like an aeroplane would be the way to get between right, the yeah, two. Totally. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I look, I look back now and think, I did that in two weeks. A sensible no time why. to do that in would be three months. Like I've done that before in three months and it was quite nice. So two weeks... And how far do you ride a day then? How many hours do you do in a day to go to do that in two weeks? So I decided that year that a sensible amount of sleep was four hours. So I had 20 hours of waking time. But obviously what? I wasn't... On the bike? I wasn't cycling that whole time. I like a cafe stop. Um, so oh, oh, just a yeah, cafe stop. No, no so problem. What, Nineteen hours, forty-five minutes. I don't know. I don't know. But like, what, how um, many hours? This well, is about to blow my mind. In terms of distance, I was doing round about three hundred kilometers a day, so about about two hundred miles, and that would vary a bit. Whoa. So if it was flat, I'd probably do a bit more than that. In the mountains, 
not so much because you're climbing. So yeah. it, it evened out to about 300. Every day to get up and do that again. That's yeah. Getting, on four hours sleep. Getting up is the hardest <laughs> bit. Yeah, I bet. I bet. Oh, Emily, so take us through now your your win what did that what did that feel like to uh to win the race after after these years it was it was amazing i it was a weird experience i wasn't expecting necessarily to win i mean obviously if you enter a race everyone in that race has a little fantasy about winning even if they don't have a hope in hell because right. it's a race obviously that's yeah. why you start yeah. but right. i also, I just wanted to finish. I wanted to see how, how I did. I wasn't thinking I'm going into this as the winner. But I just, every day that I rode, I got further and further away from the other women in the in the race. So I was, I was building a solid lead just by going a bit further every day and maybe being a bit faster and I don't know, maybe being more efficient with my cafe stops, but I doubt that. Um, and so by the time I got to checkpoint four, which was in Montenegro, there was about a thousand kilometers to go. And I had a clear lead and I've got a really weird photo of me pulling up at the checkpoint. Like I'm knackered. I look like a tramp on a bike. And there's all these (laughs) photographers because now I'm like first woman in the race. Oh my God. And of course I've just been off on my own in the mountains for days. So this is a real, so I realized, okay, right. I might actually win this. So I set off from Montenegro, uh, rode towards the border with Albania. Um, and just before I got to the border, I saw a hotel. So I checked in for the night because I hadn't slept indoors for a few nights. I thought, let's let, you know, have a wash and uh, good night's sleep. Four hours and then... or 12's a good night's sleep. <laughs> that would, yeah, well, that's afterwards. So I was, I was in this hotel in our, uh, on the border with Albania and I checked Twitter. So just to see what people were saying about the race, because of course all the racers have a GPS tracker on them and people at home can watch right. them moving across the map yeah. and it updates like every three minutes. So people are just like night and day keeping an eye on who's in the lead and who stopped at McDonald's and all of that. So I had a look and someone on Twitter had posted a screenshot of this map and said, oh no, I hope Emily Chapel knows what she's doing. And you could see all of the little numbers of the racers going east towards Turkey, except for mine, which had gone due south off any obvious route to Turkey. What? And miles from anyone and with no way of getting back on track. What? And... I, it was just one of those moments where I thought, oh no, I have I have ruined everything. This is entirely oh, my gosh. own stupid mistake. Oh my god. And everyone is watching and talking about it on the internet. So I kind of panicked a bit and then oh. I thought, well, you know, I can't do anything about this now. So I had my four hours sleep and I woke up in the morning and I was still in Albania and thought, right, let's check the route. Because I I'd planned to go this way. It just wasn't a very good Right, right. Way. So I had a look at the route I had planned and I thought, okay, it's about a thousand K. I can do that in three days. And I am going to have to because I am saving face. So get on it. So I set off. And... uh, No way. Long story short. (laughs) Oh, so you you wrote 330 K a day for three days. And yeah, like how... Was that the last checkpoint? Was that like... Was that yeah, the finish that was, afterward? Yeah, that, that was the run into the finish. So I went through Albania and had, had a great time, actually. 24 hours in Albania, wonderful place to cycle. 
um, and then into North Macedonia and into Greece. And then I sort of met other riders. So we sort of, our routes had re- reconverged um, and we headed through Greece towards the border with Turkey, um, occasionally seeing other people, you're mostly on your own. And I had a very panicky final afternoon because, again, someone on Twitter had said, oh, my God, Johanna, the other woman, is uh, gaining on Emily. And I thought, oh, no, oh no she's going to catch me. <laughs> and then a bit later, someone else said, dude, she's like 400K behind you. Calm down. <laughs> so, you know. so your route was good, was it? No, your route no. Was actually, my route was terrible. Was a, I could have got there a day earlier. <laughs> oh, no way. No I mean, way. I was still wow. the first woman, but... I could have beaten a lot more of the men if I had not gone through Albania, but I made it. I made it to the finish. The last twelve hours were the longest of my life. I had assumed that I would get some kind of like finish line energy and be like, "Oh my god, I'm nearly there! I feel great now." Uh-huh. I didn't. I was so tired, and every single part of my body hurt in a different way. So, like, the only mm. way to distract myself from how much my hands were hurting was to think about how much my knees were hurting or my feet or my throat. And it just did not end, but then it ended. What, what's the mental toll like? Because yes, you know, to put yourself that through that, interesting. you know, and on that, just on such a small amount of sleep, it's, it's absolutely unfathomable to me. I couldn't mm, imagine, mm-hmm. I can't even, I can't even conceive how it's possible, quite honestly, I can't. I don't know how you can ride a bike all day one day on four hours sleep, yeah, let alone one after the other. It's just, it's madness. <laughs> it surprised me when I first started doing it. So one of the very earliest rides I did, like back in my early 20s, was with a bunch of people who rode through the night from London to Brighton, which is like 60 miles. I've done and, it. Oh, yeah. What, through the night? Lon- I've, no, I've done London <laughs> and Brighton, though. Well done. Walked up, walked up Ditchling Beacon. Yes. <laughs> so... Yeah. Uh, I had thought, you know, how can you, you'll be asleep. How can you ride through the night? But the cycling keeps you awake. And so I was already used to, you know, you can ride through the night. Um, and as long as you're moving, you're mo- you're mostly fine. And when you're not fine, mm. then you stop. It does put you in a really weird mental space. So I think for a lot of the, the two weeks, I, I was on a bit of a high. Like I was having a great time. I was really like my mind was really open to everything around me I didn't get bored like I didn't have any I wasn't listening to anything or reading anything so it was just like no, me no. my thoughts and what was going on around me but it a lot of the time it felt like I was either like on a higher mental plane or in some cases just like very very focused and in the zone um, like meditation in it maybe you know what I mean mm-hmm. like that little sleep and the rhythm all day just I don't know yeah and I had I had emotional ups and downs and when you're that sleep deprived you can't really yeah. regulate them. So when I was feeling a bit sad, it was like, oh my God, literally the end of the world. And when I was happy, right. I was overjoyed. Um, yeah. And then of course you get a massive come down at the end. So I was fine throughout the race, but then once you finished, physically and mentally, like within a couple of hours, my body had just stopped working. So mm. I had been like riding fast right up to the last day and like feeling like, oh my God, I don't know how I'm doing this after two weeks on the road. But then, yeah. like, a few hours after I stopped, I couldn't even walk up the stairs. And it was so uh, right. strange. You, yeah, you'd done what you were going to do. Yeah. I've always thought about, like, the, the just the time with yourself in those moments. I mean, like, even when I talk to my friends that, that ride gravel and it's six or eight hours, but 
Did you have a, a mantra? Um, I always think you kind of think about everything you've ever thought about five times. Uh, mm -hmm. Did you solve any world problems? Like what is, what was your mental space like in, in those moments? Ah, oh, all sorts of stuff. Um, so, I mean, first of all, I'm, by this point, I'm really used to spending time on my own because, oh God, I mean, actually I was, I was a loner child. Then I was an academic. So you're on your own. Then I was a cycle career. Mm. And although you're surrounded by people and you interact with them, like you're doing your job on your own, you're on your own yeah. all day. You don't really have colleagues that you spend time with. And then of course the, the big tours I'd done, I was on my own and often really on my own, like not seeing other people for quite a long time. So this was just my normal state and it was actually more comfortable. I mean, I really like people, but I'm most comfortable on my own. And then right. also I've got a really active imagination. So as I was going along, yeah, I, I fixed the world's problems several times over, um, sorted out <laughs> some shit from my childhood. I fantasized yeah. about winning the race. I fantasized about <laughs> winning the race in a different way. I fantasized about winning the race and I get home and the queen has a brass band to welcome me and all that stuff. So I, yeah, I did not get bored. Um, and nowadays when I'm on long rides, because I've done so many long rides, you don't actually have time to remember all that happens because like, I don't have time in my busy life to think what was going on on like the fifth morning of the Transcon. So I do it when I'm on long rides. Sure. If I've got hours to pass, I try and run through yeah. everything. And so what is life like now? What are you, what sort of riding are you doing? So nowadays um, I'm doing a lot more gravel riding, which is nice. And I've got that problem a bit where when you do really, really big things, you get a bit of, well, how can I top that? Um, mm -hmm. What do you do when you've, you know, you've cycled across Asia, you've cycled across North America in winter, you've won the Transcon? I don't mm. really want to do anything that's much bigger than that. So I, now I'm trying to find things that are interesting and have fun stories. So I've got a couple of trips planned next year. I'm actually going to be revisiting places and seeing more of them. And I've also got much better at finding nice routes. So the first big, like, round the world, not round the world thing, uh, I had paper maps. So I was just on, like, the main road between one city and another. Whereas now I do a lot of detailed route planning and I find the good stuff. <laughs> All right. How do you have to stay in? How do you stay in shape then in between these mad adventures? Mm. Like, how many? How often are you on a bike every day? Do you, I mean, yeah, do you train hard? I, I don't know because I guess I'm trying to sort of say is like you can't. I don't know how you prepare for something when you're going to be on a bike right. for that long yeah. every day. You know, uh -huh. I mean, it's hard almost to train for, right? Well, these days I do a bit less cycling because I. I have quite a lot of other work on. I'm on my bike most days, but back yeah. then uh, my lifestyle was just cycling all the time. So whenever I had to go somewhere, I'd cycle there. Um, and I remember like the year I won the Transcon, I looked back at the end of the year and I had done so much. Like I spent, I spent a month touring through the US. Uh, I was part of a, a record attempt on the North Coast 500 where we did like 500 miles oh, yeah. in a weekend. And I, yeah, we beat Mark Beaumont's record in fact. I didn't do the full distance. Oh, I was what? a domestique. Um, no way. Yeah, that was that was fun. And what else had I done? Uh, a couple of smaller events, big audaxes. So back then, like cycling was just my life and how I got around. And I now think, how did I fit in any other life around that? But that just was how mm. how I rolled. And like I was always on the same bike with the same bags. So it meant that I had no sort of teething problems or anything when it came to the race. It was just this is my happy place. 
I know how all of this works. Yeah. yeah. Right. Yeah. Emily, we, uh, we've had a couple of conversations, what you were saying about kind of how do you top your last adventure or last race? Uh, and I always think about like what motivates an athlete is now that you've done that and you've said, okay, I've, I've gone, you know, these crazy long distances. I've stood on top of the podium. Do you find that you have a, a through line of something that motivates you or has motivated you, uh, throughout the courier days, throughout academia, throughout the transcon stuff? Um, how do you think about that now? That's a really great question, Elliot. Um, I have thought about this a lot and I've realized one of the main things is curiosity. So Hmm. it's, I am competitive, but I think the competition is more, yeah, but what will it feel like if I win? Which is one reason I've not really stayed in racing because like I figured it out. I know, I know now what it feels like when you finish, what it feels like when you win, what it feels like when something goes wrong. And most things I've set out on, it's been, I wonder if I can do this. Let's find out. And once I've done it, I think, oh, well, fine, I can do that. Great. I wonder what else there is that I can't do, but maybe I can. So like at the moment, I'm looking at doing challenges where I'm riding and also running a bit and combining the two. And the way I feel about that is I don't think I can do it, but maybe I can. And for me, I think that is the sweet spot. Like, let's see if we can find Uh out. So being challenged, I guess. Mm. Yeah. 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 And are you uh are you planning a new book? Um I have I have an idea for a book, but the idea isn't complete yet. So I don't I don't want to carry okay. on doing the thing okay. of just like have an adventure <laughs> write a book. I want to do something a little bit yeah. more sort of intellectual. But um yeah. it's not ready yet, so watch this space. Uh... Okay. And then um I I know you did go to the Tour de France. Uh, last year and watched the women race. What was what was that like? And I don't know, do you feel like you could kind of relate to them in in a way? Or it, did you feel like it's totally different? Well, I, I mean, I think I can relate to them. If you ask them, they might say, oh, she has no idea what it's like. But I had a, <laughs> I had a really good time last year because it was the first time the women had had a Tour de France since the, I think, late 80s or early 90s. And... I was there following the race and riding some sections of it with my friend Denise, who is um, a Canadian woman who actually raced in the Tour de France in the 1980s when she was young. No way. Oh, wow, that's cool. It was so good just no to way. be there with her and to see her reactions to it and to hear all of her stories and to be literally watching history being made. Like the atmosphere right. at the top of the Planche des Belfies when Annemiek was on her way up. There were thousands of people there and there were loads of women who had raced back in the day. And there were loads of just every sort of cyclist and every sort of person. And it was a literal high point, I think, for everyone. I'm so glad Mm. that I was there. Yeah, that's a super, super special moment. And I feel like it it, it kind of like, um, to me, it was this really culmination of showing how far women's sports have come and and just um how good everyone is and the professionalism is is so crazy yeah and i think the women in some ways even more professional than the men because they're doing this they're not even making money out of it in many cases a Mm -hmm. lot of them are now but Mm -hmm. 
they take it very seriously because it's all they have. They don't have, you know, necessarily a brilliant career. They're just doing it because they really want to do right. this. It's their passion and they want to show everybody how good they are at it. Mm-hmm. Totally. And so, Emily, what is the next chapter for you? What, uh, what happens next? I know you said that you had some adventures planned. Um, yeah, maybe tell us, give us a little sneak peek if you could. Well, my next chapter is has not completely been written yet because I've uh, I've been getting over long COVID. So I've had a year, a little over a year of a bit less cycling, which is a real downer. Um, but you you know you've got to do what you got to do. So I have I have plans for next year that involve some good old fashioned bike touring in Europe. I'd like to return to Central Asia and do a lot more detailed exp- exploration there because I was there more than 10 years ago now. And I want to be back in those mountains with those people. And as I said, I'm also, I'm looking at cycling plus running challenges, but as yet, all of this depends on whether my health continues to improve. Mm. So keep your fingers crossed for me. The one thing I've taken from chatting to you, Emily, is you love riding a bike and, you know, you've probably seen the world in perhaps the nicest way that anyone can really on a bicycle you know what i mean because you don't miss much do you on a bike when you when you're cruising mm. it, it's yes yeah, it's, it's really nice to ride a bike it is i mean i'm not into your distances but an hour or two i absolutely love it i love the short rides too i mean i'm almost always happy if i'm on my bike oh yeah yeah any any sort of ride as you were saying that and as rob was saying that do you think um could you describe your maybe like top 3 stretches of road or ride that you've that you've done um and why around the world oh well this is difficult because i'd like to give you a top 50 but i don't think we have time so um number one is oh god there's so many good roads in mid wales let's say number one is the mountain road between aberguesson and tregaron right in the middle of wales uh, now, Elliot, you're in Seattle. You probably don't even know where Wales is. It's one of the best places for road cycling <laughs> in the world. Nobody goes that there. really surprising. You have this perfect tarmac to yourself, amazing views, very, yeah. very steep climbs. But I, I love a steep climb. So 20, 25%. And that, that road is just one of dreams. Um, another of the top three would be a road I found in Albania. Uh, during the Transcon, just a little bit south of the capital. And I didn't realise what this road was going to be like, but it's like a a ridge. And so I went up on these gorgeous switchbacks. And then for about 15k, I was going along this road that had amazing mountain views on both sides of it. Just the landscape fell away either side Mm -hmm. of me. And it just went up and down and in and out gently. So it was like I was swooping through the air like a bird. And then at the other end, amazing switch back down again. And the whole time I was riding that road, I was just thinking, I need to tell the world about this. This is so good. <laughs> and, oh God, another one. I mean, like I say, I probably have 50 or so. Um, I'm trying to think which is my favourite Tour de France climb. Um, oh. I don't know. I mean... I'm going to remember another one as soon as I say this, but I think the the final stretches of the Galibier are pretty good, just just for views. Mm. Um, Col de Porte actually is quite good for gradients um, and also views. 
Depends how you look at a gradient. Right. I I did. Uh, I will say I did the Alpes climb. No problem. Just well uh, done. Maybe took me in a car. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> maybe took me about uh, three hours longer than the than the tour men and women do it in. But that's. Have you uh, done Alpes okay. on a bike, Elliot? Yeah. Have totally. you really? I'm yeah, impressed. There was a Crankworks race and that was my whole goal. I was like, I'm going to rent a road bike. I'm going to ride down to the bottom. And we did the climb and kind of uh, went out to back over to Leda Out. Well Do done. You know, I just claim to fame. I'm desperate to ride up Mont Ventoux. I don't know why, because it's so iconic and I've seen it. And I think I've probably got it in me in a, like one run up it in a day. <laughs> God, I think you but, can do that. Yeah, should should yeah maybe. <laughs> I yeah. love how you're just like bless you guys' heart, bless you guys' heart. You get you're doing one climb. No, it's it's <laughs> one always day. hard. It's always hard. Like I I have this problem now that I I look at things and think oh well you know I did 200 miles in a day so this will be nothing and then you do whatever it is and you're like oh no this 50 mile ride is really difficult. So right. I've got this problem now that I overestimate myself. Like if I ever go up on two again, that'll be hard too. <laughs> I tell Rob the same thing when I'm behind him, you know, I'm just like, you're not World Cup winner anymore, you know. Oh, <laughs> 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 uh, Emily, this has been such a great chat. Thank you so much. Oh, it's, yeah, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. It's been really nice talking to you. Oh, nice to meet you, Emily. And uh, yeah, just... Just keep up the madness. Brilliant. I, 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 I love, I madness. just love how much you love it. That's, that's the main thing uh, I've taken I really it. do. Brilliant. Best thing in my life. Yeah. Thanks yeah, very much, Dave. Man, Rob, that was insane. I, how was that? What did you think? Inspiring. Inspiring. Interesting. Yeah. You know, just... Like we said, a woman that really, she just loves to ride her bike so much. Yeah. Like, I mean, yeah. I, I, whenever you meet these people that do these ultra endurance stuff, right? They're they're just such totally a different breed, you know. Like, right. four hours sleep, two hundred miles uh-huh. day after day. That does not work out. I can't compute that. But they just take it in no. a stride. So, so the mental fortitude that she must have, you know, is. And when you chat to her, you know, in all the good ways, she's just a very down-to-earth, I would say, sort of totally. normal person to speak to. But totally. Like, yeah, that's yeah. right. You know, yeah, man. It's, it's crazy. I mean, and it shows the, like, diversity of things you can do on a bike. Like, we riding downhill. You're, like, only riding downhill for three, five minutes. And then you have somebody who's riding, you know, thousands of Ks. Uh, and trying to see how far they can take it, it's uh, it's pretty wild. Yeah, and enjoying what she was doing, enjoying yeah. the bike is just the vessel through the through the scenery. You know that she's riding. It, yeah, yeah that, that's what I, I that's what I enjoyed most hearing. Just that, that she loved it, and even like learning about London being a cycle quarry. I could totally relate right. to that. You know what I mean? Like, because I used to go out and yeah. look for historical things around here on a bike as a kid that's how i got into mountain biking a little bit so yeah it, it clicked with totally me. yeah yeah and i mean i loved um i loved her painting these pictures of these places and stretches of road because like yeah 
I can just, I've had those moments where you're just out on your own and you come, you crest over a hill and there's some clouds or whatever. Like you could almost just imagine her being out there after a week and a half of riding, you know, 1400 miles or something. And yeah. here she is. It's like a movie, you know? Yeah. It's a, uh, it's, it's so, she should write a book about like, the best stretches of road and like tell a story about it or something like that yeah well, maybe that's what she's gonna do running next as well i don't even know about yeah, that. Right. <laughs> yeah. and you know what the other thing that i thought was hilarious was um when she was talking about calculating how how far a pigeon's gonna run you know like so it doesn't <laughs> yeah. go under your wheel i was like man oh man like i it, it, it actually reminded me of the uh sarah bajo the urban downhill stuff yeah exactly on a different kind of ways but that's right dogs we have dogs in Santa abajo that's coming around soon as well so good looking forward it's to that. true yeah yes well man what a great episode and Brilliant. a reminder to all our listeners that uh, if you want to get in touch with us have your message read out you can email us at podcast at redbull.com or hit us up on our socials and there is a new episode of Just Ride every other Tuesday. You can find it wherever you get your podcast. If you want to look at us, maybe you do, maybe you don't. I don't know. But if you do, <laughs> redbull.com, Red Bull TV is where you'll find us. But yeah, thanks for tuning in. That was, uh, that was an eye-opener. And we will see you next time as always. <laughs>